welcome to Word Online. Hello, and welcome to series five and episode nine. We're studying parables at the moment, and this is the parable of the weeds. This is Matthew chapter 13, which is a chapter given over to seven different important parables. We're going to be studying Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30, and then later on, verses 36 to 43. Well, we are at a very important time in the life and ministry of Jesus. After a very successful first tour of Galilee, which we studied in series three, and after a very profound teaching which he gave on the Sermon on the Mount, which we studied in series four, we're now in the second tour of Galilee, where he's taking his newly appointed apostles around, extending his ministry and performing many miracles and engaging in key teaching and some debates and arguments with his opponents. We've definitely seen the sense of conflict between Jesus and his religious opponents increase during series five, this second tour of Galilee. And this provides the context for the parables of Matthew 13. Matthew himself in chapter 12 gives us an account of a fundamental moment of conflict and division and that casts a shadow over the rest of the gospel story but it particularly helps us to understand the significance of parables and in Matthew 12 verses 22 uh, to 37 and then onwards to the end of the chapter we have a major conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees over his identity. The crowds wanted to call him the son of David, which is a title for the Messiah, the deliverer, the saviour from God. And the Pharisees claimed at the same time that his power came from satanic evil forces. In other words, he was a totally false messiah operating with occult power. It was an astonishing conflict. And that conflict will roll on through the story. Matthew notes that immediately after that moment of conflict, which represents a settled decision of the religious establishment, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the priests, as far as we can tell. But Matthew says that after that, this is the moment when Jesus focuses on using parables. And we discovered earlier on in the last episode that a parable is a symbolic story which has usually one main meaning, although some parables can have a detailed allegorical interpretation of individual details. We can only determine whether that's the case when those explanations are given by Jesus. That was in fact the case for the first parable that we studied, which was the parable of the sower. That was in our last episode. And that's an episode well worth listening to in this context if you haven't done so yet, because we looked at some of the introduction to the use of parables. The parable of the sower really emphasised the significance of the act of preaching and sharing the message of Jesus. And the overwhelming message from that parable is that we should keep sowing the seed, as it were, of the word of God, whatever the outcome. The parable determined four different outcomes, some of them very bad, some of them rather mixed, and only one of them really good in terms of productivity and growth. But 
the seed that's sown in the ground successfully in good conditions can be extraordinarily productive. Jesus said it can be up to a hundred times reproduced. So that was the first parable. And in that episode last time, we also looked at the purpose of parables and the fact that they have a kind of almost a prophetic purpose because they illuminate and illustrate and encourage the believer who's following Jesus. And they sort of close the door and confuse the person who set themselves against the gospel message. They confirm decisions already made by being a little bit hard to understand. And Jesus explained that by reference to a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 6, which he quoted and applied to the current generation of Jewish people. I think Jesus was fundamentally worried for and concerned for the Jewish people of his time, because although he was popular in one level, he was aware that the whole establishment was against him and they could sway the nation against him in the long term and therefore prevent many people coming to be true believers, to being born again, to becoming disciples and members of the church community that would follow after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. So he is very concerned. And he also points out in the parable of the sower that there is a satanic uh, opponent, Satan himself, all the powers of darkness are against the gospel. They don't want the message to spread. They don't want the message to be understood. They'll even take the seed, uh, the idea of the gospel out of people's minds directly as quickly as they can if they're able. That point is made very explicitly in the parable of the sower. And we have another theme in this parable of the weeds concerning uh, opposition. And the reality of that opposition is very, very clearly stated. So let's read the parable of the weeds, which is the first of the two passages that we're going to study today. The second one we'll read a little bit later is Jesus' explanation of the parable. But first of all, let's just read it. So we're now Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds amongst the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted, and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. As we said in the discussion of the last parable in the last episode, Jesus is speaking very familiar language to his listeners about agriculture and about farming and about smallholding. And just to uh, make that point clear, 
not only, as I said last time, was Galilee, the area he was in, very fertile, very agricultural, one of the best parts of the country for um, agriculture. Not only that, but the whole of Jewish society was set up around the principle that everyone had access to land. Now, this didn't work out fully in practice, but the law of Moses actually had stated that the land was going to be distributed to all the 12 tribes in the different geographical areas. And then the land would pass from father to son in the same family without being sold outright to anyone else from generation to generation. Now, the Jews never fully followed this pattern and it had been disrupted by exile and return and Roman occupation and other things like that. But still in the days of Jesus, generally speaking, most people had access to some land and big commercial farms were relatively few. So people understood about sowing the seed and creating a harvest. Self-sufficiency on the land was a goal of many people and they were very sensitive to the weather, the climate and other economic conditions, irrigation, water supply that affected the production levels for their agriculture. So Jesus is speaking their language. And as he does so, he now uses the concept of sowing the seed in a different way than he did in the earlier parable, uh, the parable of the sower. Now he's not talking about different types of soil and rocks and the receptivity of the soil. He's actually comparing two different seeds. He's actually describing a social incident that might take place in a Jewish village or town or uh, in, in a very remote area. He's actually describing the result of a kind of social conflict that might take place in a small community. He's describing someone who maliciously comes secretly at, at night and plants weeds in a field that's just been planted with healthy seed. Now, this was the sort of thing that could happen. And conflicts between families and between individuals often spilled over into agricultural incidents and issues. Issues with land and farming and planting and sowing and reaping and so forth. Also, very often, incidents with livestock particularly with cattle or with sheep, goats. Shepherds would be in conflict over different uh, areas that they might go roving with their flocks. And in terms of the actual farming, there was the possibility of conflict over many issues. I mean, one such conflict that's recorded in the Old Testament, it's quite an interesting thing, is that the boundaries between land were usually marked by boundary stones, not so much with enclosed fencing as we would have in the modern world, particularly the developed world and the Western world, that was very, very rare in those days. It would be boundary stones that would mark the land. And the Old Testament is a place where we can see that there is a warning, don't move the boundary stone. Now, why would you move the boundary stone? Because you're in conflict with your neighbour and you're using the issue of land as a point of conflict and gaining an advantage against your neighbour. Proverbs makes the point clearly. Proverbs 22 verse 28 says, do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your ancestors. So in that context, it's 
easy to imagine that another way that a conflict could play itself out would be in this rather mean and nasty trick that could be played, whereby someone literally throws in the seeds of a particular weed. Now, many people have wondered, well, what actual weed have we got in mind here? And many scholars have come up with the idea that this may be a weed called darnel, which is a little bit like wheat, superficially, and it grows up initially in the early stages of the plant to look a little bit similar to wheat and other similar crops, but then it is very different once it's fully grown. Darnel was available then, and you could easily access it in seed form or collect the seeds, and maliciously you could spread the seeds on your neighbor's plot of land. This is a very conceivable possibility. And it's difficult to spot as soon as it's been done because the seeds look so similar to the wheat seeds and the early plant looks similar too. So it's only as time goes on that you begin to realize on a closer inspection that you've got two types of seed that have been mixed up together. And this causes a really significant problem for the farmer because the weeds will be taking up space, taking up nutrients, taking up moisture, which restricts the growth of the, the wheat seed or whatever other seed that there might be. And also when it comes to the decision of whether you pull out the weeds, you've got a very complicated thing to do because you have to tread on the land. If there's a whole lot of those seeds, it's very difficult to identify each one and to pull them up without disturbing the, the wheat or the good seed that you have sown. So Jesus is describing vividly a real difficulty that people might experience if someone maliciously came and tried to undermine your agricultural production in this direct way. There's no easy way to solve the problem. The instinct of people is to get rid of these weeds as quickly as we can. But if they're there in large numbers all over the field, it's almost impossible to do without an enormous amount of effort and great interference with the good seed, which will restrict its growth and make it less productive. On the other hand, if you leave it until harvesting, it's all mixed up together. So as Jesus tells this story, you can easily imagine this being quite an emotional story to tell because people would be feeling this sense of anger and frustration and thinking, yeah, this could happen to me or I've heard it happen in these different situations. So it's a very living story. And people were very, very sensitive about land. Again, just to emphasize the point, we didn't have enclosed land with heavy fencing and gates and any kind of security around land that is a common in, in developed economies today. No, that wasn't the case at all. No, land was open, generally speaking. The boundaries were, were marked by stones and other indicators here and there. And it was easy to cross over from one person's land to another. There was no real sense of any kind of security system or police to police these things. Um, it was really just a fairly open situation. Therefore, people were 
often feeling vulnerable about what happened on their land. I mean, another issue that was uh, easily problematical was if animals like sheep trampled on land which was being used for agricultural purposes. That was another common issue. And those um, flocks of sheep and goats had to be kept separate from the productive areas of the land. So this story makes a lot of sense. It's the sort of thing that did happen. It's the sort of thing that could happen. And then in verse 36, the disciples approach Jesus after another parable has been told and they want some more explanation about what he means and what implications we should draw from it. So let's now turn to verses 36 to 43, which is the second half of our passage today. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Well, Jesus is very explicit. He creates an allegorical interpretation. And as I said earlier on, just occasionally, uh, parables are given this more detailed interpretation by Jesus. And that helps us to understand the meaning and the emphasis that he wants to give. So the initiative of God is to take believers and disciples and to place them in the world so that they will have influence and reproduce, multiply. But the context of the Son of Man doing this, that's obviously one of Jesus' titles. The context of, of him doing this is that the evil one the spiritual enemy of the church, Satan, the devil, is using a similar tactic. He is working through people who act, whether they know it or not, as his agents in the world to infiltrate the world and to control it. And the basic message that Jesus gives is that over the passage of time, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness are both going to grow. This is a fundamental reality that Christians need to grasp and something that they find difficult to grasp. So, for example, 
Some people find it difficult to believe that the church will continue to grow and is continuing to grow because they've got a pessimistic outlook on the church. They can see all the opposition. They can see all the difficulties that it faces. But Jesus actually indicates to us that the church is going to grow through time, not necessarily consistently every single year or decade, but over a longer period of time, you'll see growth towards the ultimate point of this story, which is the second coming, the return of Christ and the day of judgment. Now, Christians need to grasp hold of this way of thinking and take a positive view of the growth of the church, despite all the problems. On the other hand, we also need to accept that the kingdom of darkness and the many people who associate themselves with the world against Christ, that's going to grow too. It's going to grow numerically and it's going to grow in spiritual power through the years. And Jesus is anticipating like an ongoing spiritual tension throughout every generation of the church between the church's ministry and mission and message on the one hand and forces in society and demonic spiritual forces that oppose it on the other. And he's encouraging his followers to embrace both these realities and not to be intimidated by that reality or imagine there's any way the church can kind of resolve the conflict. There's no way the church can pull out the weeds. That's basically the point. We can't use force to do that. We simply haven't got the power and it's not a productive thing to do. We have to live in this time of conflict. But, and this is an important but, the conclusion of the process will be an absolutely one-sided victory for the kingdom of God under the authority of Jesus, who, when he comes back in his second coming, will remove the spiritual darkness and the people who represent it will be judged. So Jesus is basically saying, leave the judgment to God, leave the resolution of this conflict into the future and commit yourselves to the present task of growing the kingdom of God. It's a fairly similar message to the message of the parable of the sower, where the ultimate message came over, we need to keep sowing, sowing, sowing the word of God, getting the message out. Jesus is basically saying in this parable that his kingdom is going to grow. It's got the DNA within it to grow. So commit yourselves to that task of growth and be aware that there'll be conflict and difficulty along the way as a result of the fact that the enemy is also seeking for his kingdom to grow. I wonder if that helps you to make sense of your experience. For most people, this is quite a liberating parable because it really helps us to understand the positive dynamic of the kingdom of God, but also the fact that there is significant opposition and resistance to it in many different ways. Disciples ultimately will be vindicated at the second coming when they will shine like the sun. So what concluding reflections can we bring? Expect the growth of the kingdom of God. And so when you pray that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
that prayer which we studied earlier on when we studied the Sermon on the Mount in series four. That prayer is really important. Your kingdom come. We should be praying that regularly, believing that God is going to win more people to himself and strengthen his church around the world. But we also should be aware that as that process goes on, there'll be setbacks, there'll be difficulties and there'll be opposition. There will be evil. There will be suffering. There will be spiritual battles. And from time to time, there's going to be persecution. But when that happens, we must not lose our confidence. It's what we expect from the pages of the New Testament. And it's what we should expect very specifically from this parable and the teaching of Jesus. Therefore, we're going to have to resist the temptation to think, as some people do, that the church is simply going to take over the world. It's going to be so successful that it's going to take over the world. Some theological positions adopt that view, but it is an unrealistic view from the point of the evidence of the New Testament and particularly passages like this one. We are praying for God's kingdom to come now, knowing that it will only come in its fullness in with the second coming of Christ. So the final thing to say on this passage is that it focuses on the second coming. It's incredible how much material in the Gospels speaks about Jesus's second coming and in the rest of the New Testament for that matter. It is a major doctrine of the church that Jesus comes twice to this world, once as saviour and redeemer and once at the end of history as judge and Lord. And we know that our vindication is tied up with his return. We don't know when that's going to be, but we know that the church is going to be vindicated at that point and all the evil strategies that stand against it are going to be overturned. So let's not underestimate the power of the gospel and let's not underestimate the extraordinary work that God is doing in our world today. Stories come to me regularly from different parts of the world telling me of incredible miracles, of revivals, of groups of secret believers in situations where they have to operate underground, of sudden conversions, of dreams, of visions, of tremendous interest in the Bible, in people's individual languages, in different nations around the world. And in some countries, you see the growth of huge churches and huge missionary movements. So whatever the bad news in the world is, there's also good news. And that good news is in this parable. The sons of the kingdom sown into the world are going to be fruitful and productive. And when Christ comes again, they're going to be vindicated and we will be found to have been on, as it were, the winning side. So let's follow Christ wholeheartedly. And if you face difficult circumstances as you hear this talk, I want it to nourish you, to encourage you to the very depths of your being and to give you that courage to be steadfast, to stand up against all the forces that might stand against you, to pray the Lord's Prayer with conviction. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done here now 
and in the future. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.